2: You have access entry 220.LK0214, Certificate Number 31405, The Christmas Truce.
1: so we just passed the hundred year anniversary of the end of World War one the uh, armistice day November 11th 1918
2: fun fact I learned about armistice hmm. it means the arms hold still just like our word solstice means the, the sun, sun holds, holds still. still isn't that Is crazy that right armistice the arms hold still I guess and I like so- it those are the only words that end with stis, except for justice, which I do not think means- The just holds still? The juice holds still. It's a reference <laughs> to the OJ trial. <laughs> if the juice holds still,
1: you must acquit him, Bill. But it's juice like O uh, juice. Like so for a French dip? Yeah. So it's really more like the broth, the broth holds still, which is, I, I can't think of a better description of justice. Yeah. You go to jail and all you get is
2: a little bowl of still broth. Still broth. broth. Mm. So, yes. 100th anniversary. But in the
1: case of the armistice, does it mean your human arms or the arms that you have picked up to commit war? I assume it means the weapons are now still and can be beaten into plowshares or or whatever you can. Right, what what you do with old weapons or in in many cases sold to other belligerent nations. Sure, yeah. Sell them to African warlords. That's what I do. Or or just sell them to gun dealers in the South who uh, don't check your ID before... You buy it. It's called the World War One loophole, <laughs> to baby. Take it back to New York City. Have you heard that
2: tape that the Imperial War Museum in London put up a recording, putatively of the guns stopping
1: at the end oh, of World War Two? I, I read, I read people describing how it chilled them and and set the hair up on the back of their. And neck. you were like, "No, sir,
2: I'm not <laughs> listening to that.
1: I don't want to hear your dumb like guns falling silent." I've recordings. heard guns,
2: and I've heard no guns. <laughs> <laughs> the, the border between them interests
1: me not. But I do not believe it, I think, is why I didn't listen to
2: it. Yeah, it turns out it's recreated, but in an interesting way. My, my dad was explaining this to me last night. So yeah, you hear the, the, the mortars stop, and then you hear dead silence, and then birds begin to chirp again.
1: Chirp, 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 chirp. That's
2: exactly what it's like. You did hear this. Chirp, chirp. I've lived it. And the source of this is actually, of course, there was no magnetic tape in World War II. And even recording on wax was barely a thing. But what they did have was these big underground oil tanks that they used to seismically determine where artillery booms were coming from. Mm -hmm. Because I guess based on speed of sound and what's vibrating how much. And somehow they would use photographic film to record the vibration of each of these drums. Oh, and so based on that, they still have some of these tapes from the Moselle at the end of the war. So you can actually see which you can put in World War I era mortar boom sounds taken from earlier in the war, mapped onto when each of these were, and then you just stop doing that, and that's the end of the war.
1: Interesting. So it it actually was duplicated from
2: record. From actual gunfire recorded in a, or, you know, big mortar artillery fire recorded in a certain spot, but not in any kind of audio way we would
1: recognize. I learned something very interesting. So uh, on my other podcast, Friendly Fire, we reviewed All Quiet on the Western Front. For the anniversary of Armistice Day. Is that the
2: first 1930 black and white movie you guys have ever done on that We've show? done a
1: lot of those, but you know, All Quiet on the Western Front was the first talkie nominated for Best Picture, yes. which I had no idea that I guess talkies came in that late, 1930. And All Quiet on the Western Front is a weird movie because although it's set in on the German side of the lines and all the characters are German... They all talk in these crazy all high Americans. mid-Atlantic actor <laughs> voices, like "Hey there, what do you say there, old chum?" And it's a little strange at the beginning. You get used to it throughout the film.
2: The first movie to win a Best Picture Oscar, uh, Oscar Wings, is a silent movie also about World War One. I. I guess that was the style at the time. Right. That, well, it was a. It was a. Uh, the war made a big impact. It's what people were making prestige movies about. The same way you see a you know a Holocaust movie today, and you're like, "Ooh, I bet they get some Oscar nominations." Right. It's probably the same effect.
1: Well, I kind of mistakenly understood that most of the deaths in World War One came from the relatively new invention of the machine gun, mm-hmm. the uh, water-cooled machine gun. But in fact, it turned out I was corrected by a couple of people on the internet, a rare instance where people on the internet corrected me and I welcomed it. <laughs> <laughs> a rare instance where they knew more than I did. So what you're saying is
2: you would like this to happen more so you, could, so you can give more of these welcomes.
1: If you're listening to this show right now, just make a short list of all the things you'd like to correct us and send it to me. Ken doesn't <laughs> want to hear it. I'll pass it on. But no, I, I learned that 85% of the deaths in World War I were the result of artillery, which also was a kind of a new... Uh, artillery had a new accuracy at this point and it was, you know, they were. Could you aim at a person or would you just boom a trench and 10 bodies go flying? That's the thing. It was because the lines were static in Mm -hmm. trenches, you could, you know, it wasn't that you had to constantly be moving artillery around and reciting it. They developed a technique where the barrage kind of advanced along a line, like each new shell you launched. You set the angle of the cannon just a fraction of a degree higher, and it's just
2: so it's just following you down the trench. Yeah, it's just wa- oh, it's just man. walking shells
1: along a, a front. That's nightmarish to me. Imagine the guys down there. It's pretty awful. And eighty-five percent of the people in World War One died as a result of cannon fire. Which, I mean, I think that's why it worse des- odds than being a pirate. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, it destroyed people mentally because so much of the time you were just sitting in a hole, just waiting for the. Shells to land. I mean, awful. Sure, a whole generation
2: came home and was just not the same. You're right, my and, gr- my grandfather included.
1: And I really, your grandfather was in World War One. My grandfather and grandmother on my father's side met in France during World War One. She, uh, he was a an officer in the infantry, and she was there to sing to the troops as a member on, of a on pr- which side. A pr- <laughs> On the American side. She had studied opera in France before the war. And so went back to France to entertain the troops in a kind of proto-USO and wrote a book about her experiences called A Nightingale in the Trenches.
2: Can you imagine how good looking your grandfather must have been? There's like one woman there for every, I don't know, 300 guys. And he's the one who snares the nightingale in the trenches.
1: So the ni- her book, A Nightingale in the Trenches, is just basically a long recounting of all the handsome officers that <laughs> wanted to take her out. And, and, you know, she has stories of, you know, riding in a car with General Haig to a, a party where champagne was flowing out of a 10-foot tall tower or whatever. And I think my grandfather won her heart primarily because he was a Welsh liar and convinced her that <laughs> He was really extraordinary when in fact he was just a terrible person. Well, not terrible, but you know, not great. <laughs> <laughs> not great. He was
2: like 40th percentile of person. Yeah. But, well, but he this was, is a great lesson for the, for the evolutionary fitness of the future. That's right. If you're having a hard time perpetuating the species because you're all living in the equivalent of a, of a squalid Welsh coal mining village, hmm. you just need to lie to your perspective mates.
1: My experience, at least in my family, is that if you are competing against other suitors who are handsome or rich or suave or talented, all you need is to be able to sing and tell mm, half true stories and you will win win, uh, over your sweetheart. It's just hard to
2: imagine that you, John Roderick, could be a descendant of these two people, one of whom was a talented singer in stage presence and the other told elaborate lies. (laughs) I don't see how your act could come
1: out of these two people. No, it's strange it's strange to imagine, but the war did. I think she had a pretty good time in the war and her brother, actually. I mean, they, when I was growing up, they both, my great uncle Al would speak to me in sort of wartime French and they would sing the songs of the war. World War I was a real like a, a pretty merry jaunt for them, but my grandfather was broken by the war and never really recovered and died drunk in a, a hotel in Los Angeles without a penny to his name.
2: It makes me wonder, as somebody who has never been in war, whether there was something unique about the warfare of World War I that was worse, or if that was just the first time, so no one expected it. People are like the all quiet on the Western War bo- Front boys that are just expecting glory and and fun, or uh, well, you know, or, when you or if it's just always bad now and we stop talking about it.
1: When you think about the history of war, what made World War One unique in its time was that prior to that war was pretty mobile. Battles happened on a field of battle, and two armies came from opposing sides and they clashed, and then the victor took the ground and the, the defeated army either retreated from the ground or was destroyed, but it really was a war about conquering territory and there wasn't a feel. I mean, battles were awful. Obviously you could get, I mean, battles where people were swinging swords and shooting arrows I think you, there were a lot of people who had a very miserable time. Sure, and lots of slow <laughs> death from gut wounds, I assume. Yeah, laying on the battlefield screaming for help and no one came while the flies ate you. But what World War 1 sort of pioneered was this static war, a uh, war of attrition. And what in 1914 the German plan was to sweep in through Belgium and come down and take Paris, which is also the same plan that they tried to execute in World War II and succeeded in taking Paris in World War II. Because they had practice. They had practiced. But, you know, traveling across Belgium is fairly easy. It's a flat country and you can get to Paris pretty quickly that way from Germany. A lot easier than going across the French-German border, which is hilly and forested. And so the German plan was to sweep down and take Paris and they were stopped by the French and by the British at... um, at the Marne River, at which point there was this uh, series of battles called the Race to the Sea, which was each army was trying to flank one another between, you know, going along this border area between France and Belgium. It's like doing your hands on a baseball bat, exactly. choking up to see who's one, actually going to be. Two and, and at some point you're going to hit the top of the bat and or the English Channel. The English Channel. And that's what happened here. They, as the Germans neared Paris and they got right to the outskirts of Paris when they were stopped and pushed back there, they didn't have a plan beyond that plan. And, And in fact, the German general von Moltke at the time when they were stopped before arriving in Paris, he wrote back to the Kaiser and said, we lost the war because the whole objective was to take Paris. At that point, they did this race to the sea where they kept sort of improvising each side, improvised a new front to the battle. You know, the, the British expeditionary force and the French would flank around and the Germans would stop them. And then they'd flank around. And when they got to the sea, each side just sort of hardened their position, a defense, you know, built a defensive position. And by the fall of 1914, there was a continuous wall from the, the North sea all the way to the Swiss border, where all along the way, each army had kind of arrived at the point they could go no further. And they built a wall. Is this your
2: typical thing where all these kids went off to war thinking it was going to be over short?
1: Yeah, over by the winter.
2: That always happens, right? Yeah. And no, nobody's ever been like, this is going to be a long, awful war, but.
1: Certainly the Germans thought that they were going to, because the Germans were also, fe- again, fighting on the Eastern front like they did in World War II. They were fighting the Russians and the Austrians were, and the Italians. I mean, every, it was a, a global it was, war. It was as European if it war. was a world war. Yeah. Maybe even the first such world war. Oh, wow, wait a minute. <laughs> You but, may have you may have something there. But they were still calling it the Great War. It was kind of a war to end all wars. But they weren't calling it that either. They called it that pretty shortly after it was over because of how bad it was. That didn't last. No, they had weather wars. Uh, we'll get to those later in future episodes of the Omnibus. But by the fall of 1914, they had these hardened lines, at which point there wasn't anything really to do but exchange fire and The first Battle of the Marne was in September of 1914, and that was where really the lines just hardened. And by, for all intents and purposes, from that first Battle of the Marne all the way until November of 1918, it was effectively a stalemate. No one, I mean, every mile of ground that someone gained was eventually lost. The lines would fluctuate, but no one ever gained or lost any appreciable territory. And and to get back to my question
2: about the psychiatric devastation of the war, do you think that's all bound up and just having to sit in the same place and visibly do nothing, gain nothing, accomplish nothing, and be in a shooting gallery?
1: And in a shooting gallery, right. Because the combination of machine gun and bombardment, plus the new technologies of poison gas, airplanes. Barbed wire? Barbed wire, uh, blimps, you know, zeppelins also tanks. Like, I feel it, like there weren't a whole
2: lot of nightmares about blimps. Oh, like all, like all those poems about, um, the evil of mustard gas by Wilfred Owen and Siegfried Sessing. What if all those guys have been writing about their blimp dreams? Well, the
1: death blimps are back. That's where you're wrong. Cause blimps, uh, you know, zeppelins actually bombed London, during the war, it was the first kind of like strategic bombing of a city. So do you think people had like 9-11 style PTSD about blimps? I think so. Terrible, you know, these blimps brrr, up there like high above. Is that above.
2: the scary sound of a blimp? Yeah,
1: blimp goes brrr, old blimps. I think new blimps. Have I don't know different sounds. They play they they play Christmas carols. Aren't they too far away the blimps to hear? Uh, They had loud loud motors because it was olden times. No, they're not that high. I mean, there's guys up there there shoveling coal. Uh, Coal fired blimps. They realized that blimps were bad when you, you could just fly a biplane up there and shoot it down. So the blimps had to have like defensive planes. We'll get into blimp warfare another time too. That seems like a great episode of the omnibus.
2: Is that why they put stuff on the Goodyear blimp? Like the little messages going little by? Little signs that say,
1: don't shoot me down. Please don't shoot me down. <laughs> uh, all of these things contributed to like how awful World War I was for the combatants. And it's not to say that there are wars that are wonderful for the combatants. And And – what was, I guess, I wouldn't say nice, but what was different about World War I was because the lines were static, you could develop infrastructure behind the lines. You know, there were- So these guys had bowling alleys kitchens and- Kitchens and, I mean, my grandmother was there singing- for people and... She was a nightingale, not off at of an airbase somewhere, no. literally in the trenches. In the trenches, or, or, or the men were in the trenches and she was sort of, yes. Don't put her above the trenches, she'll get shot. <laughs> she should be in the trenches. Her experience of the war was that she would sing to the men in the trenches and then would depart the lines, get into someone's staff car, and drive to Paris for dinner and stay in a hotel and be swanned around and then in the morning, get in the car and go back up to the lines. See, that's an advantage that
2: the central powers didn't have. That's right. Like they couldn't get in there, you know, their big braided opera singer types could not arrive from Berlin or wherever in time. Harder to get back to
1: Berlin, but they did have
2: Brussels, you know, so they, they had. Uh, Brussels was their Paris. They had places to go. Once again, that's a big advantage for the allies. (laughs) If, uh, if Brussels is your Paris, you're on the wrong side. But
1: by the fall, There was a real sense on all sides by the fall of 1914 that the war was basically a stalemate. It had, the Germans had failed to take Paris. The Allies were not really in a position to push them out of Belgium. That's got to be the worst. So this
2: is just going to go forever.
1: Well, nobody thought that. Everybody thought, well, so now what do we do? We have arrived at a, at a very unusual thing in war, which is that neither army can advance and neither army really can retreat or has a good reason to. Why would the Germans give up Belgium? They hadn't lost. Sure, they have Belgium now.
2: Right. When the war starts, you don't have Belgium. They now have one,
1: parentheses one, Belgium. They have Belgium. <laughs>
2: <laughs> they have all wa- source for waffles.
1: Uh, they have all that delicious raspberry beer. Mm. Um, they have the, you know, I mean, think about, well.
2: I am out of Belgium things to think of. There's you know, a dog. There's the, a kind of dog. The I think. thing
1: about Belgium is this is a thing that a lot of people don't understand. They have the best food in Europe because they have all that French cooking, but they're not limited to like Frenchy ingredients, right? They have all that. I mean, I would not say that the Dutch had great food. Let's just put that out there. The Dutch eat a lot of fish balls and I don't mean the testicles of fish. I mean, they like to take fish and put it in. Pat it into a a ball and, and dip it in bread. But somehow the food in Brussels is among the best you'll ever find. And nobody ever goes on a food tour of Belgium, which they really should do. We have one Belgian
2: restaurant here in Seattle and it's great. Yeah. Great cheese. Belgian sandwiches. I believe the thing about the French fries, they say they invented French I fries. I think it's true. And I think it's true.
1: Belgian chocolate, Belgian beer. I mean, they're like masters of all of it, but we don't celebrate them that way. And we really should. Because there aren't a lot of other things to celebrate about Belgium. But their food is amazing.
2: So do you think the Germans should have said, hey, we've got Belgium. It's a real culinary win for us. We want to negotiate a piece. When it comes to meat, quality makes a huge difference in texture and taste.
3: And even though it might be better for you and the environment, a lot of the higher quality meat you find at the grocery store is just too expensive for most people's budget. Get two pounds of ground beef and two packs of bacon absolutely free, plus twenty dollars off your first box when you visit butcherbox.com/iheart or use the promo code iheart at checkout. That's butcherbox.com/iheart
1: or use the promo code iheart at checkout. Well, so the Germans had an idea about how they were going to win this war, and blimps? Was it blimps? It wasn't, although blimps were a component, but they didn't, they knew that blimps weren't going to be the deciding factor, but they did feel like if they could just exhaust one of the five armies they were fighting and bring that army to the negotiating table, if they could just make one of their combatants tired of the war. They could then focus their strength on the other side. And they're probably not wrong. They're not. You know, wrong. considering
2: they could fight the West to a stalemate while still deploying a ton of men and uh, ordnance on the Eastern Front. You know, if they could solve one of those problems.
1: And what happened in the East, of course, was that the Russian Revolution happened during World War I and took the Russian army out of. Like the Eastern Front kind of collapsed when the Russians were just like, look, we've got our own problems now. We're not able to participate in your war. But that happened kind of too late. It was later on in the war and too long later in the conflict. Uh, and at, at which point also the Americans were coming into the field. And But that, you know, that was happening in 1917. And they weren't going to come home till it's over over there. That's right. They had a well, whole song. How would you even keep them down on the farm after they'd seen Paris? Or Brussels. Oh, you can keep them down on the farm after they've seen
2: Brussels. How can you keep them down on the farm after they've seen the muscles from Brussels' Jean-Claude Van Damme?
1: <laughs> I wouldn't stay on the farm. No, you wouldn't. Once and I've that's
2: why you came to Seattle. To, to learn kickboxing. <laughs> you
1: were like, <laughs> I need
2: to live in the city. I need the bigger world of kickboxing. My tank traveling. are too loose.
1: <laughs> uh, but so at this point, like there was kind of globally a feeling, and this was a fairly enlightened time in the world. This is a moment where the, the fin de Sical, or how, how did we decide we were pronouncing that? Sicle? Fin de siècle? Sicle? Uh, that era had kind of transformed the world into, or at least, uh, you know, the European world into a place where, the finer things were celebrated, art and architecture, music and uh, design.
2: And the mathematical
1: accident of the century
2: rolling over makes it seem like it's a new Hopeful Dawn uh, era. Hopeful it it dawn. happened to us in the 90s as well.
1: We fell for this. And this was a beginning, I think, uh, we'd seen the culmination of the Industrial Revolution. A lot of new technologies, electricity and gas-powered locomotion. And we were not yet in an era of like widespread Automobiles, but there were cars and airplanes. And mass communication networks. Mass communication. It seemed like a new and much more enlightened time. And this time period coincided with the rise of the suffragette movement uh, throughout Mm. Europe. And the suffragette movement, you know, we, we celebrate it here in the United States as being a kind of homegrown movement but really it was a global movement and the suffragettes of And the US was behind Europe, right? Well, it, the first country to grant the first European country to grant universal voting rights to women was actually Finland nice. which was a part of the 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 Russian Federation at the time. It was like a duchy of Russia. But in most European countries the right to vote or women's suffrage actually kind of was tied up in the experience of world war one going into the war. Was, Was the idea that like women would never make these mistakes. No, it was more that prior to the war, the argument against suffrage was, was as it is even now in arguments about suffrage that the women were not going to be capable of making those hard decisions. They were a de- more delicate sex. They were a more a refined sex. There, I
2: guess that explains a lot of the you know tying yourself to horse carriages and and uh, uh, putting bombs in the in front of Buckingham Palace. That changes that dynamic. Like we can't be the delicate sex if we're chaining ourselves to things, right?
1: Well during world war 1 we saw this a lot more during world war 2 but during world war 1 it was also true that an entire generation of, of young men went off to war from all of these countries germany austria france belgium holland the united kingdom and so that war work the the, the industrial work back at home was, that work was taken up by the women and so throughout the war women were doing this munitions building i mean they were they were handling all the the heavy lifting. So, the experience of the suffragette movement within World War I, you saw that the argument that women were not capable of the heavy lifting of deciding who to vote for. You can't make that argument if women are building tanks.
2: Yeah, and ch- yeah, choosing to vote for your member of parliament seems a little less taxing than right. building tanks and cannons.
1: But in 1914, there was an international women's movement that had been cooperating across nations to advance what they considered to be a common cause, which was women's suffrage throughout Europe and the Americas. And so the women involved all knew one another, and had exchanged letters and had gone to conferences with one another. And so in the early days of the war, there was a lot of tension within the women's movement about what to do, because half of the women's movement saw their responsibility as being an antidote to the crazy carnage that was happening. Men. And half of the women's movement felt like they needed to be extremely nationalistic and patriotic and demonstrate to the men that they were mm. just as badass. Because that's how we get the vote. That's by right. Being you don't get the vote by being seditious. The you get the vote by being right there on the front lines of the...
2: And what did the mom from Mary Poppins think? She's kind of my favorite suffragette. Hmm, we're from- merely soldiers in petticoats.
1: I think, didn't she turn her house into a boat and sail a, or no that was the neighbor <laughs> the neighbors are a boat
2: she's just a bad uh, you know cook and housewife cuz she's always off at protests oh that's or, or right whatever. that's right
1: uh, well and think about who she was married to yeah, God, What a he prig was such a prig
2: did you see did you know that my daughter was a suffragette a 1910s era suffragette for Halloween that's wonderful. What, was, did
1: anyone recognize her?
2: Well, we made her a very period accurate sash with votes for women written in, uh, uh, it was the only thing I did was write votes for women in period accurate typeface. Oh, and that's nice. fabric marker.
1: Did she carry a torch of illumination? She carried torch a, of justice? a
2: goodie bag. She wore a little, <laughs> she wore a cloche and kind of a tweedy looking old timey suit. So basically she just looked like um, some old timey lady named Millicent, but mm-hmm. with a votes for women sash. Oh, so. Millicent.
1: <laughs> or I don't know, Gertrude, whatever suffragettes are named. Well, let me tell you what some suffragettes are named. Let's the, get into um, it. There was a woman named Carrie Chapman Cat, and that's cat with two T's. They all have three
2: names. Yes. Don't they know that's an assassin thing?
1: Well, it, it, that only became an assassin thing later. It was a, it was it a, was a, it was a cool suffragette it, it thing a, before. It was a feminist thing.
2: <laughs> the assassins ruined it.
1: So Carrie Chapman Cat was in contact with a lot of German suffragettes. And uh, during the fall of 14, the German suffragettes wrote her a letter saying, you know, we women need to band together and put a stop to this senseless war. The suffragette cause should be a cause of peace. So back then, the dangerous globalists were all women. They were women, Uh, right. It's like Georgette Soros. And because there were not open lines of communication between the German and British women at the time, Carrie Chapman Catt had to then relay that message to the British suffragettes. And they were all, you know, they were publishing zines. Uh, <laughs> yeah, they were, was all the whole scene. <laughs> yeah. They were making, you know, independent uh, rock music. And, and this was, I think in the American press at the time you could publish because the United States wasn't yet in the war. There were media blackouts in France and in Germany and in the United Kingdom, but those stories could get published in American newspapers. And then once they were published there, the British or French press or German press could then report on the story as something that was reported on in America. We still see that today. Yeah.
2: What, was the, what were the reports
1: here? The suffragettes in the United Kingdom got these letters from the, the Germans. And in response to them, They wrote what became known as the Open Christmas Letter, which was a letter signed by a who's who of suffragettes in the United Kingdom, addressed to the women of Germany and Austria, saying, in the spirit of peace and openness, we need to unite as women and bring a close to this war. And it was widely reported. Was it widely reviled? It seems controversial. It reverberated through this time because of this This problem of kind of acknowledging that this was an unwinnable stalemate that already was costing a lot of lives and a lot of materiel and was counter to the spirit of the times. And there was a lot of questioning about the war happening in a lot of different quarters, including on the front lines.
2: And the fact that the war was such a complicated thing that you can't even explain today with the benefit of hindsight. At the time, I'm sure there were a lot of people saying like w- what unfortunate set of allegiances even brought us to this point, right?
1: Yes, and especially given that all of the belligerents thought of themselves or the the primary belligerents at least thought of themselves all as Christians and all as white Europeans, and the the dividing line between the Germans and the French has is pretty clear to both parties the French being a sort of Gallic Roman people and the Germans being a- Northern barbarian people. Barbarian people. But in the UK- Like, yeah, it's all- Who do you identify with? It Your alliance switches, but it's the, it's the same to this day. They're all Euro trash to us. I mean, the English fought the French for hundreds and hundreds of years. They're sworn enemies for, you know, a thousand years. How do you now ally against them?
2: The Germans. And there was just never a flashpoint, a thing that would just make the average man on the street be like, yeah, the yeah. Alamo, or yeah, the 9-11. You know, there was there was nothing.
1: I mean, until the sinking of the Lusitania. Right, in the United States. But on the front lines, throughout the fall, there were multiple instances where the troops on either side kind of just agreed to stop shooting at each other. And it wasn't an agreement, um... No one ever raised a white flag and said, hey, stop shooting at us. But there was a a kind of recognition, I think, that both sides ate dinner at the same time. And so every day the shooting would stop around dinner. And it didn't take long for either side to say like, oh, right, we don't shoot at dinner. And then it was kind of like, well, if we're not shooting at dinner, why shoot around breakfast either? And and large parts of the front line just settled into a kind of live and let live situation. Because it was not clear what any what benefit could be accrued from machine gunning one another.
2: And there were clear benefits to the occasional informal truce as well. You could recover bodies. You could, right. you know, if you knew there was not going to be, you had an
1: hour without anything incoming, you could... Do you know, redo your fortifications. <laughs> yeah, <you could. laughs> yeah, right. And I mean, because there was no ground to be gained, I think that there were plenty of stretches of the front line that were more or less quiet for weeks and weeks. Were they all quiet on the Western Front? It was not all quiet on the Western Front. Somewhat but that quiet That happened on the Western later. Front. All quiet on the Western Front was when your gun stopped on that fateful day. And the
2: guy's reaching for the butterfly? And you
1: could hear the birds.
2: Cheep, cheep, cheep. So what did the officers think of this state of affairs? The
1: officers did not... Well, I think the lower-ranking officers were pretty on board with it. But as you moved up the chain, higher-ranking officers were really, really opposed to it because... A big part of the motivation for World War One was nationalistic. Part of the strategy was to dehumanize your enemy, and these uh, we're these, the cultured ones, we're better. Right, and these truces were had the
2: exact opposite effect. It makes it seem like we're all in the same boat. So the, the, the and the weird thing about this time is, you know, this is kind of the last war fought when there's a rigid class structure in Europe, right? Right. So you have this thing where the 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 fighting men on either side feels much closer to the the fighting men on the other side than they do to their own officer corps because, you know, at least the people on the other side are of their class, whereas the people giving them the orders, there's like an unbridgeable divide there. And it's the same. The officers feel very close to the officers on the other side and merely put up with their own, the rabble of their own men.
1: Well, I mean, and we'll talk about this on a long-planned episode of Omnibus that we've still never done, although talked about a bunch, which is that the royal families of all these nations. And a lot of the royal families, this was their last hurrah. The czar of Russia didn't survive this war and either did the Kaiser. Um, but they were all cousins. That's the worst thing about World War One. <laughs> the king has to be pretending to be patriotic and it's, it's his second cousin. Yeah. Not even his second cousin, right? I his mean, they first? were, they Jeez. were all grandsons of Queen Victoria. And that is, that's an omnibus. Boy, we've been stacking BBs in that little canister for, uh,
2: I feel like you could make that entry just by editing together all the times we've mentioned
1: it. (laughs) And then we wouldn't even have to do a show next week. So the open Christmas letter was received with very complicated feelings. And actually, it prompted within the women's movement in the United Kingdom a lot of dispute, much more dispute than it prompted in the wider world. Because the overwhelming majority of UK suffragettes we're on team fight the boche and not on team women unite to uh, unite against war
2: we love voting but we also hate the kaiser
1: more right so there were two you know the women's movement in the uk kind of split into two movements the national union of women's suffrage which was by use of the word national very pro war and the women's international league for peace and freedom Oh Wilp which was uh which advanced this idea that there was a sure. that the global struggle for women's suffrage was a greater cause than the nationalistic uh, war between people I'm team Wilp for sure You are yeah But all of this created a climate in December of 1914 where there was a lot of reticence toward prolonging the war and a lot of in some ways, like good-hearted feeling of fellowship directed to people on the other side of the conflict, and it all came to a head on Christmas Eve. This is the is it nineteen fourteen. So this is the first 14th. Christmas Eve of the war. The first right? Christmas of the war. This is everybody's first time away from home. Right. I mean, as soldiers, and in the days before Christmas. I mean, for a long time during that fall, especially when the guns were quiet. When these informal truces happened, the soldiers on either side of the trenches realized that they were really close to one another, and you could hear like, one geographically a, close. Yeah, you were just you know uh, maybe a hundred yards apart or less, and you could hear one another singing. And so the troops started to sing for the benefit of the troops on the other side. You know, the Germans would sing "Deutschland Über Alles" and the. The British, you know, it, it was taunting at first. It would start with patriotic songs, but I'm sure eventually it turns into music hall songs. And... and a lot of the musical traditions of the two countries were shared. I mean, everybody knew how to sing a great number of, of tunes. And there were... Beer barrel polka. Plenty of Germans had studied in London. I mean, there was a lot more familiarity with different languages so that you could kind of sing one another's, or you know, common songs. Yeah. And the troops realized that they could talk to each other. And so they would shout to one another taunts, but also greetings and just like, good morning, how's it going over there, you, you Boche uh, villains? There was probably more of a language <laughs> gap then than
2: the now when you can assume that, you know, English is kind of a second language spoken by everyone in Europe.
1: But uh, I think that's a true among troops, but I think in the officer corps, educated people spoke. German and French, yeah, and just there would have been at least one guy you knew who spoke, spoke German, or right. a guy on the other side who spoke English, and you could shout pigeon stuff back and forth to one another because German, or I'm sorry, English is a Germanic language, so there is enough commonality. Even now, you can figure out a way to talk to one another. They could just say "Priesenkolonnen" and, and, and "Kusel." They could. All right, it was call a and say one.
2: <laughs> was that the song they Pries were singing? and, and, and "Kusel."
1: That's <laughs> where it came from. Uh, so on Christmas Eve, all along the front lines. Troops started to sing Christmas carols. And Christmas carols are a thing that are really shared across culture. because I, To Christ, this day, I think of them as being super German. Yeah. Christmas is, a lot of those carols are German, right? I mean, o Tannenbaum, Silent uh, Night is just still a Nacht. Right. Um, that's all I got. And so the troops would start singing carols to one another and the other side would join in. And would they do the Batman lyrics to Jingle Bells just to, they would, just to try to tweak them? They'd take harmonies. People were singing like a little jazzy undercurrents. You know, this That's was nice. This, there was jazz happening now, so people were scatting and so forth. <laughs> uh, guys, guys would, you know, they'd pull a clarinet out of their bag and
2: a, li- a, a licorice suit. stick.
1: <laughs> yeah, I'm sure there are a lot of zoot suits on the Western Front. But both sides celebrated the holiday the same way, Christmas trees and candles and decorations. So as the singing increased on different sides of the line and candles started coming up and, and troops started wishing one another Merry Christmas, you know, shouting across the way like, Merry Christmas, Merry Christmas, Merry Christmas, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. <laughs> um, Finally, a German. <laughs> well, a couple of those were Germans, they were just... Under a blanket. They had amazing accents. Multiple, multiple places along the line, people started to raise their heads up above the parapets and say like, hey, don't shoot. Just wishing you a Merry Christmas. And spontaneously, at multiple places in, in this long, long trench between the Hundred, English Channel and, miles. and Switzerland... Troops from both sides came up out of the trenches and met in the middle in no man's land.
0: Have you always wanted to learn to play an instrument? Maybe you've even tried at some point but gave up because you felt lessons were too expensive or that you just didn't have the time. Thankfully, there's Musician. Musician is the fun, easy, and affordable way to learn guitar, piano, bass, ukulele, and even singing. Start. That's unlimited access to thousands of lessons, exercises, and songs on as many instruments as you want for two whole weeks. Just go to musician.com slash start. That's Y O U S I C I A N dot com slash start. And this is a
2: nice thing about Christmas. Like in, in our day, future things, Christmas has become sort of weaponized by this idea of whether it's a super religious holiday with all the, um, culture war that entails or whether that's offensive. And what I've always liked about American Christmas is that it's this kind of weird no man's land between the two. It's like this. there's this quasi-secular Christmas where it's not just like snowflakes and evergreen trees and the stuff you can get away with in a public school, but it does have this uh, element that's filtered in of Peace, Peace on, on, earth, on earth and goodwill, goodwill to and all men, and even specific um, ideas and images that come from carols and and European traditions, and yet we kind of accept it as a a common civic season
1: of weird, diffuse religion. You know, right? And uh, also, I mean, it, you know, it's got all its pagan roots. I mean, you can celebrate Christmas a thousand ways. And in America, we do. Nope. If you open your (laughs)
2: presents on Christmas Eve, that is wrong and weird. You should open them on Christmas morning. What about
1: one present on Christmas Eve?
2: If you're the family that has like pasta or pizza on Christmas, nope. That's weird and you shouldn't do that.
1: Do you have roast beef or ham on Christmas? Oh, we usually do ham. You do ham,
2: yeah. Roast beef would be actually more British and traditional, right? Right, right. Gotta have your Yorkshire pud.
1: On Christmas morning, I have Welsh rarebit. uh, Which is just cheese toast. Well, it's the way we make it is biscuits with ham on it and then cheese sauce on top of the biscuits and ham. So it's kind of like a Benedict-ish It's thing. a Benedict-ish thing, except with cheese. Benedictine. And, and we've never really put eggs on it, but you certainly could. I'm not telling you to, but, but hey, this, you said it. This meal my mother has been making for me on... Christmas morning, my entire life. And now it's not Christmas if I don't get my Welsh rarebit. Does it work the other way? If I gave you
2: Welsh rarebit right now, would it become Christmas?
1: No, because what happened is there was Welsh rarebit inflation in my family and I started asking for it on my birthday <laughs> as well. And so I uh, so the only two times, to- I mean, you could make it any day of the year. No one ever makes it. I'm not even sure if I could make it the way my mother makes it, but she makes it for me two times a year on my birthday and on
2: Christmas. It's like the only thing in the world with Welsh in the name. So it's very on brand that it's it's your
1: uh, holiday tradition. And and I didn't even know that's what it was called for most of my life. It was just like the thing I had for breakfast on Christmas. And then I realized, oh my goodness, it's called Welsh
2: rarebit. I was reading about plum pudding because I think plum pudding was one of the traditional holiday foods that was even exchanged over the lines in the case of the Christmas truce. Yeah. And because people in the field could have it, they're soaked in alcohol, uh-huh. which means they don't, uh, uh, they don't spoil go bad. Right. Yeah. Like you could, you could send a, a plum pudding to your, to your son or your nephew on the lines, your brother, uh, or send a the, salami
1: to your boy in the army.
2: Exactly. Except not in a dirty way. Mm. And that's exactly one of the benefits of a plum pudding is that it's just a lump of beef fat and dried fruit with maybe just enough flour and sugar to hold it together. And then all dipped in rum. You don't need an oven this is why the the, right. the lower classes love to eat plum pudding on Christmas is because nobody had an oven and this was just a thing you could boil on a stovetop because it had been sitting in your kitchen for a month in in
1: spices and rum have you ever had plum pudding
2: I haven't yeah no I haven't really either what do you think
1: it's just because, beef fat and raisins yeah we're because we don't live in Bob Cratchit's house. But, I mean,
2: <laughs> it's a little chilly in here sometimes, but it's not Cratchit cold. No, I have. Uh, I, th- I like fruitcake. I, th- oh, I don't like it how when. Do you like fruit? I don't cake? like it when fruitcake is used as a hacky Christmas oh joke.
1: My, you are you. Every once in a while, you say something that just is so out of the Ken Jennings Do you think I'm trolling? Do you think I'm book? trying to get clicks? If I was working for the Chicago Tribune and I had a style manual that just was devoted to Ken Jennings, <laughs> it, would it would say, loves fruitcake. <laughs> <laughs>
2: I think too many people are against fruitcake just because of- uh, It's terrible. No, it's fine. It's terrible. It's fine. It's got those little jelly. If you were just eating candied fruits, you wouldn't be like, uh, candied there, fruits. There you go.
1: There you go. You don't eat candied
2: fruits. That's what's terrible. Who eats candied fruits? There's nothing wrong. If you were just sitting eating candied fruits, you wouldn't be
1: like, ugh, these are awful. You'd be like, hmm, these are like fruits, only I don't, candied. I don't think you would. I think you would not be eating candied fruits unless you were a grandmother or unless you lived in Bob Cratchit's See, this house. is the thing. You're a, you're worried about the image of liking fruitcake or the no, ingredients thereof. I not. I don't care. If you were actually
2: eating these things, you would be like, this is actually delicious.
1: My house is decorated so much more grandmother than even your grandmother's house. <laughs> in that there's like piles of newspapers from the 90s? i that is, that is true of both houses. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not opposed to grandmother uh, optics. I think if you, if you had gone over the top in, in your trench and taken a fruitcake or a rum cake <laughs> over to I, the- I would have been bayoneted with- No, I my, think they that at the time that would have been a, considered a lovely dessert because those are 1914 foods. They come in a tin- Exactly. They don't spoil. And the two troops on either side did exchange all kinds of gifts, tobacco and fruit cakes, presumably, and candied rats or whatever it is that people in 1914 (laughs) thought were good.
2: You're saying candied rats are not good, but if you were just to sit and eat candied rats, you would be (laughs) like, hmm, these taste like rats, but a little better. Here's what I'm thinking about these guys. They must have been so happy
1: to have someone new to talk to. Well, and that's another thing. That must have been a huge part of the Christmas truce. And one of the commonly reported topics of conversation during the Christmas truce was, we're really tired of fighting this war. How about you? And the other guys said, we're really tired of this war too. Why don't we shake on it? And there was a lot of... Um, people must have felt so heard. They've really. been getting
2: gaslit by their officers for months. And finally they're like, are we crazy or is this like does this war suck?
1: And the Germans are like, yeah, yeah, it sucks. And it, what's cra- what must have been crazier to them was because these were all spontaneous truces on many in many of these instances, people on either side of them a mile down the trench were still fighting. They could hear bullets <laughs> being exchanged, uh, but in their little section they all kind of were like are we cool are we cool and and a few high ranking officers witnessed it and felt very afraid to get up and join the troops because they felt like they would be a target like a brigadier general right. or whatever Plus they're the military industrial complex. They have nothing to gain by peace breaking out. And a lot of the officers were infuriated by it and screamed at their men to come back and regain a belligerent posture.
2: It really does open the curtain on kind of the farce of warfare that everyone has to buy into to do it, right? Right. Once this happens, the officers can't be like, no, no, remember? Remember, we hate them. You like getting shot at more than exchanging puddings.
1: There were several of these truces that lasted a couple of days. Some of them went as far as the new year. Right. That's the beauty about Christmas being at the end of December. Right. It's that whole
2: week between. Even if you're in work, nobody's doing anything. Uh,
1: And eventually the officers prodded their men back into combat. And in some cases, you know, like sort of forced them to start shooting just to break this spell they were under. Is the story true of the soccer game? Were you going to? So there were a couple of, uh, the soccer game story took on a life of its own, that there were there were multiple locations where competitive soccer broke out between the teams. In the no man's land. And it became a an oft-repeated sort of anecdote of the, because the, the story wasn't reported initially. And again, was it was originally reported in American newspapers. Mm. And then it went, Back to European papers, Uh, the Christmas truce was greeted with very warm feelings in the United Kingdom. All the London papers talked about it as a sign that the brotherhood of mankind was greater than whatever you know, whatever petty disputes. Whatever petty disputes. The French and German press was much less laudatory, and oh really? There was a real. The French press was like, no, the Germans are evil and. and But I love French press. It's delicious. I know. Well, that's because you're a snob. I don't actually I just drink, coffee. drink instant coffee. That's right. You don't <laughs> drink it. You like French press for Do you think this is because tea?
2: the um, the British had Dickens? They had had a Christmas resurgence in the late 19th century that had made it kind of part of their national civic culture. And, I, uh, I
1: do think so. And I also think that there was a lot of brotherhood of man talk happening at this point. And it's, you know, it, partly it's from their privileged position as like the... The most dominant colonial power that they could begin this rhetoric about how all men should live together in peace as long as because, they live under a British rule. Yeah, when government. they go back to the status quo, it's pretty good for the <laughs> British Empire. But then there was a kind of period about that soccer game where there was some revisionism about it and some feeling that it was all a fictional tale and that it was too good to be true and so forth. It was apocryphal.
2: And I think Robert Graves, the Claudius guy, actually wrote a fictionalized version of it. So the one that people heard, it's like the Angel of Mons thing, where the one that everyone knew was a a short story. But in this case, was there a a basis for it? So
1: as more and more contemporary historians looked into it, it was reported from both sides in uh, letters home and in people's diaries and from both sides, conclusively pinpointing various games, including one famously where a British soldier had a soccer ball in the <laughs> trench and brought it out. And they, they, I mean, that I think some of the doubt about it was, what would no, they use? Right? Well, and no man's land was really trashed. You know, it was a rugged, rugged environment. How could you get a soccer game going? But, um, but I like, I like how a
2: lot of the objections are uh,
1: are sports based. <laughs> Yeah, this could, where would the goals have been? I, uh, and there were plenty of pickup games where they were just kicking a tin can around. Mm-hmm. But there actually was a soccer game, and that became a kind of metaphor for the fact that war was that this war, and in fact all wars, were senseless, and could be resolved by just getting the men together and getting a soccer game going. Who won? Uh, well, legendarily, it, the score was 3-2 to two with the Germans oh. in the lead. Well, that's
2: nice for them. Yeah, that's nice. They're kind of one and one when it comes to, when it comes to World War <laughs> they I. They did win that game. They
1: broke even. They ended up losing the war. The following year in 1915, by that point, the war had become, uh, there was a lot of bitterness because uh, gas had started to be used. There were bloody, bloody, bloody conflicts in the ensuing year. So that by 1915, there was a lot less feeling that we were just living and letting live on either side.
2: And I bet uh, the officers had cracked down and they're they like, we're not doing that thing again with the with the gift exchange. It, it was explicitly forbidden. It's like the new boss who's like, we're not doing Secret
1: Santa this year. Yeah. I just want to preemptively send out the memo. Casual Fridays is <laughs> a thing from the old days. The new owners here at iHeartMedia say, no casual Fridays. <laughs> Uh, but even so, in 1915, there were there were instances where, even against direct orders, troops got up and ran across and gave one another plum pudding and candied rats, and and then ran back and got back to their shooting. But there, you know, the spirit of Christmas was strong enough that um, the legend of the truce reverberated, even when the battles had become really really bitter.
2: The funny thing is that, you know, it's a hundred years later and we probably remember the spirit of the Christmas truce more than we actually remember the specific strategic objectives or
1: policy objectives of any particular battle of the war. Well, and it wasn't until 1918 where the kind of conclusion of the war revealed that nothing had been gained except millions of lives lost. Like no one, on the day of the armistice. N- nobody gets to The celebrate. Germans were still in Belgium. I mean, there wasn't any kind of... There was never a breakthrough, really. It was just like, okay, you know, fine. Like, the Americans are here, and that means that we probably don't have as good a chance anymore, and we're tired, and there's no food left, so. Not even candied rats. We give. And it ended up being a, the end of World War One was actually a bad deal for the Germans. But we can get into that on another episode. Luckily, time.
2: that had no historic repercussions
1: ever. But two interesting things resulted from that Christmas Day truce. Yes. And from the the suffragette involvement and the suffragetic conflict. Is that really the adjective? That's where I'm going. Suffragetic conflict uh, internally. The nationalistic female energy during the war and the redoubling of effort to replace men in factories, to convince the powers that be that the women were 100% behind the war and and had the nation's interest at heart. Convinced the British general public to extend partial suffrage to the women of the United Kingdom in 1918. They can vote for part of a candidate. The right to vote was extended to women who were property owners and of the age 30 and above. So basically, the same people. Th- what this, goes for property, like
2: uh, yeah, that's right. Like if she's got like a curling iron.
1: Yeah, I don't think I don't think just like a sewing machine was enough to describe her as a property owner. Full voting rights didn't happen in the United Kingdom until the late 1920s, but in the United States and in most countries in Europe, it happened quite a bit earlier. In, in a lot of cases, toward the end of the war. In the US, it was in 1920. Mm-hmm. But it was really World War I that was the catalyst for women's suffrage in Europe and throughout. Now, a lot of European countries, it took them a long time. In fact, in Liechtenstein and Moldova, we, Moravia, women couldn't vote until 1984 or whatever. I don't. I don't. Is that think true? There are places in Europe where women were not voting until a lot of well places. Switzerland, century. Portugal, the right to vote didn't happen until. I mean, in Portugal, I don't think women had the full right to vote until 1975 or six. Do Did they censored Mary Poppins there? Though we adore men individually, they should have censored Mary Poppins just because of Dick Van Dyke's accent. <laughs> that should be that should have been censored worldwide. We
2: agree that as a group, they're the, rather stupid. I can be done.
1: Yeah, yeah you should have been done. <laughs> <laughs> but one of the other interesting results was that uh, a German man by the name of Richard Shearman, who had been a kind of teacher before the war, was on the trenches and witnessed the Christmas Day truce. And he was so profoundly affected by the experience of seeing all these men who had just been shooting at each other, spending a couple of days exchanging gifts and singing together and playing soccer, that he went back to Germany and and formed the youth hostel system. Really? And so youth hosteling, he had had the idea before the war that there should be cheap places for students to stay because he'd taken a group
2: they should be able to take off their backpacks and have sex
1: yeah right right <laughs> they should they should do some chores and then uh, <laughs> sleep in uh, on lice ridden mattresses i spent a lot of time in youth hostels when i was a young traveler
2: so youth hostels predated ecstasy that's hard to believe
1: it is <laughs> in fact i was stayed in youth hostels before there was ecstasy that's crazy to me but yeah he came back to germany after the war and started youth hostels, with the idea of making it an international organization where young people would come together and through the spirit of travel and cohabitation... Nothing w- like this ever happens again. There it was would one of never those. be another war.
2: It didn't work out that way, but uh we got a nice system of places to stay for backpackers.
1: Yeah, that's right. I mean, I would propose that we institute Christmas truces even now, except I think that would be greeted with a hail of uh, recrimination that I'm promoting a openly religious holiday when I should say midwinter truce. Here's
2: what you'd get. you get people online being like, the Christmas truce starts earlier every year. And that concludes The Christmas Truce. Entry 220.LK0214, certificate number 31405, in the omnibus. Futurelings, it is the holiday season in our era. Um, I don't know what time of year uh, it is for you. If uh, the solstice is, winter
1: solstice is your most festive time. Uh, It may be that the magnetic poles reversed. And so their idea of what the top and bottom of the earth. So they think Santa lives at the south South pole? South pole, maybe? It's all very confusing. But in they may era. have a very different idea of what the solstice is. I mean, I guess not. That, that would—that That's eternal.
2: I would hope that the equinoxes have not processed enough that they don't know what I'm talking about.
1: Yeah. But, but they may not. I mean, they may only feel the rays of the sun through the um, intermediary of the computers that do all the thinking for future beings. You're saying they have no calendrical system at all? I don't know. Even the computers would have to be solar powered at some level, wouldn't they? Oh, hey, did you know,
2: speaking of calendars, did you know there was no Christmas truce on the Russian front because...
1: Oh, they used the Eastern calendar. They were
2: still on the old calendar until the October revolution, so they didn't even have Christmas on the same day. So that could be happening right now. We could be describing Christmas to a whole population of lobsters who uh, uh, don't.
1: Well, interestingly, happen. there were fronts um, in World War One where both sides were... Eastern Orthodox, so the Bulgarians were fighting the Greeks, uh, and that would have been both. And they Julian would Julian calendar. They would have shared a uh, so a they have a Orthodox Christmas truce, Christmas. but it's like
2: in January or something. I think,
1: and I think they actually did have a Christmas truce along that along an Orthodox battle line at some point. Yeah, right. Later on, I, I, they may have later been earlier. I can't remember. They may, have, I think, later. They may have been influenced by the by news of the Christmas truce on the Western front. If
2: it is your holiday season, um, we wish you uh, all the
1: the spirit of the season, whatever sure, that is to you. All the Cthulhu slime that you use to decorate your Christmas mollusks.
2: Yeah, what if they're celebrating the birth of some Cthulhu-like god? Should we really be congratulating them on this?
1: Oh, I see what you're saying. Little, like
2: little Cthulhu born in a
1: manger. We don't want to. the thing is, Cthulhu is only a bad god to us. But if you are. If you are a, sure. a race of Cthulhu's... We need to be broad-minded about this. Sure, Cthulhu may be like a super benevolent, happy, like a candied rat-delivering super octopus.
2: We don't want to blaspheme your tentacled gods. We wish you well. We hope they smile on you in the new year. Um, in our era, uh, people were welcome to send us gifts to celebrate this happy season, either by email at at HowStuffWorks via the postal service at P.O. Box 55744. I forgot for a second. 55744, Shoreline, Washington, 98155. Um, They could congregate and sing carols Mm. with their little mouths in the air like Peanuts characters. (laughs) That's only the adults. (laughs) At the Futurelings fan page on Facebook, uh, and they could follow uh, the important pronouncements of the Omnibus Project at Omnibus Project on every social media network under the sun or snow. I was at Ken Jennings on Twitter.
1: John was at John Roderick on Twitter and Instagram. Listeners, from our vantage point, through our two eyes and two nostrils and zero tentacles, two ears, but one boche like mouth. <laughs> what? One warm beating holiday heart. We do not ferme our bouches. We open them. Uh, But anyway, through our bouches and our boches, we have no idea how long our civilization survived. Uh, We hope and pray that the catastrophe we fear may never come. Although, to you, it may be your origin story. So every time we say that we fear this catastrophe may never come, you may be clacking your mandibles together no
2: (laughs) we love the meteor it gives us life
1: if that meteor or plague comes soon this recording like all our recordings may be our final word but if providence in the form of a benevolent cthulhu allows we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the omnibus